Our God, we come to you now in your words and we come to wait upon you. We long to hear from you. We long to grasp hold of who you are. We long to be changed by you. But we come now to rely on your word, even to place all of life upon it. So God, may I please you this morning to reveal yourself and your glory, the glory of Christ in your word, that our souls may leave this morning more satisfied than when we come in. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me, please, if you have a Bible, to James chapter 5. We are almost finished in James. It'll just be this week, and then two weeks' time, we'll, we'll finish our studies in James. This morning, we are James chapter 5, and verse 7 to 12. James chapter 5, verse 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, and take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. At this point, James is beginning the conclusion of his letter. And as he does that, he comes full. He comes again to address um, suffering of believers, as he did at the beginning of his letter. Do you remember back to James chapter 1, verse 2? He said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The theme in that first section was remaining steadfast or enduring through suffering. And here in chapter 5, we have the same theme. Now, as we know, James has brought so much challenge to the believers he's writing to and to us. But as he comes to a close, he returns to the theme of suffering. And it's almost like he's, he's saying to these believers, I, I haven't forgot about your suffering. 
And I want to continue to encourage you to suffer well. James says, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, the therefore connects this passage to the previous passage. James had just highlighted ways in which the believers were suffering, so he recognizes their suffering. Now he says, therefore, be patient. The Lord is coming. Just be patient. The Lord is coming. Last time, just last week, um, the believers were encouraged to be living now in terms of finances it was then, but to live now in view of the Lord's return. And that same theme continues here. Be patient in suffering in view of the Lord's return. We can't miss the emphasis in these verses on the Lord's return. We see it there, verse 7, the coming of the Lord. We see it in verse 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. We see it, verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. That is the righteous judge of all the earth, Jesus Christ, who will return to put all things right. He's standing at the door. He may return at any moment. It won't be long until there will be an end to your suffering. But perhaps you're like me, and you want everything done yesterday, and really you aren't very good at waiting patiently. Of course, it so often feels like that with suffering. We get frustrated, we want through it, we want it over and done with. James says, be patient. The Lord will return. And all will be well. Of course, countless believers have wrestled with the question, why does God allow suffering? Why did this happen to me? Or why did this happen at this time? Why am I having to go through this? And I think often our our minds... T- tend to think that, that we've, we've somehow just got caught up as, as victims of this sinful, broken world. But the, the, the truth is, is that we, we are not so much victims of this world, but rather the world is a victim of us. Humanity was put in charge of the earth and, and messed it up. God made the world perfect, harmonious. We sinned and broke the world God made, bringing suffering, pain, hard work, broken relationships, and and so forth. It is Jesus who fixes the broken world. And that's the gospel right there in a nutshell. We broke the world, Jesus fixes it. You see, God could have wrote humans off from that very first sin, judged condemned us to an eternity of suffering for our sheer audacity of rejecting and disobeying our Creator. But instead, God came in Jesus Christ, experienced firsthand what it is to live in this broken world. 
he lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He died to take sin's punishment. He rose to life again, offering the hope of life forever. And he will return again to restore the world and us to complete perfection, never to be broken again. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that I believe the way to manage and to endure suffering is to look back events and try to work it all out, try to get answers to every question, but actually the way to endure suffering is to look forward to when Jesus will put all things right. One writer says, a proper Christian theology of suffering is a forward-looking perspective. I want to turn to Scripture just now and just draw on a few references to, to help us build up that forward-looking perspective. We know from Scripture that the Lord will return at a time we don't know. His return will come like a thief in the night. And when he comes, no one will miss his return. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1. He will return like lightning that comes from the east and shines even to the west, Matthew 24. He will come, and when he comes, he will bring relief to his people, Second Thessalonians 1. When he comes, we will be perfected, unable to sin again, 1 Thessalonians 3. We will be caught up with the Lord and will always forever be with the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4. We will be alive never to die again, 1 Corinthians 15. We will enjoy a, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells that cannot be destroyed, Second Peter 3. Brothers and sisters, be patient. The Lord is coming. All will be put right. All will be well. We endure pain here and now for the reward or the blessing that is Think of how women endure pregnancy and childbirth. They do that for the blessing, the reward of the child that is to come. Or many people will endure the pain of, of surgery for the reward of the blessing of, of that better and healthier life. We endure temporary pain now for the joy of eternal blessing. Now James gives us three examples of patience and we'll just take each one of these now. The first is the farmer in verse 7. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, <clears throat> being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. I'm told the early rains refer to rain in October, autumn time, that was needed to, to soften the ground after a hot summer 
which would allow the farmer to plow and to sow his seed. The later rains then refer to March, April, and springtime, when a crop needed water to swell the grain and, and, and produce a good crop in the end. And the farmer was dependent upon these rains in between autumn and spring. But what does the farmer do in between? Well, he has to wait patiently for quite a time with with hope and expectation of what is to come. He has to on certain days, depending on circumstances out of his power and control, the rains. He's no other option. He can't just give up. He has to just continue working away in the meantime. Now, there are several references in the Old Testament to early and late rains. And if you look these up, you will see that every time the Old Testament refers to early and late rains, it comes always in the context of God's faithfulness. I'll give you a couple of examples. So Jeremiah 5 builds a grim picture of the people of God. He says they have been utterly unfaithful to God. They're people with stubborn and rebellious hearts. They are wicked. They are full of deceits. Their evil deeds have no limits. Jeremiah says they do not recognize the God who gives autumn and spring rains. Do not recognize the God who say, if you obey me, I will provide these things for you. So Jeremiah speaks destruction against God's people because of how they have acted. But yet, he says, chapter 5, verse 1, even in these days that he has just described, even in these days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you. Why? Because God is faithful. Another example, Hosea. Of course, we know the whole picture here is of God's faithfulness again to his unfaithful people. To his unfaithful people, God says, Hosea 5, 5 verse 3, He will come to us like winter rains, like the springs that water the earth. James readers would have known their Old Testament. They would have been able to detect this echo or theme of God's faithfulness. And this would have given them confidence in the return of Jesus Christ to put all things right, to judge their enemies and deliver them. As we endure suffering today, perhaps what we need to hear is very simply... God's faithfulness will bring us to the end. Not our ability to cope or to manage or anything else, no. God's faithfulness will see us through. That's the former. Second example is the prophets, verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers... Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Again, you think of Jeremiah, who was arrested, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was released from prison and hid in a cistern full of mud. We read that he sank down into the mud. 
Now, what brought Jeremiah suffering? Well, it was his faithfulness to proclaim the word of God. Think of Ezekiel, whose tongue was made to stick to the roof of his mouth. He was only able to speak when delivering a word from God. And later we can read of how Ezekiel's wife died so suddenly. We can turn to Hebrews 11 and read a, a summary of what happened to some of the prophets. They were tortured. Some faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. Now, if we take anything from this, surely it is this. God's people are not immune from suffering. Those following God's commands, striving to be faithful to him, are not immune from suffering. And it's interesting, actually, that true prophets came to be recognized as those who suffered hardship, especially from those whom they were speaking to. For us today, as we experience suffering patiently waiting for the Lord to return, our endurance affirms and assures to us that we are indeed the true people of God. We've had the farm, we've had the prophet. The third example is Job. Now, people will often refer to Job as an example of of suffering, and I think it is helpful. I think we can actually identify with him in, in many ways. Um, Job was tortured in his mind. Um, he, he just he couldn't work out his suffering. Um, he, he couldn't work out why, why he was suffering and hadn't done anything to deserve the blows that came upon him. He had so many questions. We get a flavor of that in Job 6. He, he seems to just blurt it all out before God. In Job 6, he, he talks about how heavy he feels. How he wishes God would just crush him and end his misery. He, he says he doesn't feel he has the strength or patience to endure. And, and he's tormented with all the advice coming at him from others. And he's demanding answers from God. He doesn't lose faith. It seems that patience for Job is enduring through unanswered questions. But what we see clearly too is that Job endured with focus on the end. Listen to Job 19. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end I will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another, how my heart yearns within me. It seems to me that Job was able to endure suffering, not by working it all out, but by looking ahead to when God will put all things right. We turn to the end of Job, 
And we see that as Job waited, all was restored to him. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job, we read. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. See, present suffering is not the end of the story. I don't know if you remember um, 2017, there, there was a shooting in a Baptist church in Texas. There's a couple there called Joe and Clarice Holcomb. I think that's how you pronounce their names. They were the parents of the associate pastor that was leading the service when the gunmen attacked. Now, this associate pastor and his wife were killed. They, had, they then had a son and daughter killed. And they also had a pregnant daughter and three of her children killed. So in total, this elderly couple had nine people from their family killed. But I'll never forget hearing them interviewed about the loss of nine family members. And Joe Holcomb said this. He said, of course, it's going to be difficult. But, he said, we are Christians. We have read the book. We know the ending. And it's good. See? Present suffering is not the end of the story. When Christ returns and all is restored to us, it is then, as we read James, it is then we will know the Lord's purpose. It is then we will have no questions. And it is only will know just how compassionate and just how merciful God has really been to us. It is then, I believe, we will say with Job, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eyes see you. And when we see him, all will be well. question we've got to ask now what do we do in this time of waiting for the Lord's return well James gives us the answer verse 8 he says you also be patient establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand the word establish is the same word used of Jesus in, in Luke 9.51. There we read, when the days grew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face, that's the same word, to go to Jerusalem. Now this is referring to Jesus and the cross. Jesus set his face, that is, his determined focus was to move towards the cross. And James is saying, we've got to fix our hearts and minds on that final day. And that will change how we are living here and now. Now, I want to refer back to some of the scripture references to the return of Christ that we mentioned at the beginning. Because I believe they're helpful to us to grasp what we do in this time of waiting. Or what it means to establish our hearts. So Matthew 24, we referred to Jesus speaking about his return. 
He says, Matthew 24, verse 42, Therefore, in light of his return, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Jesus brings the challenge, verse 45, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Jesus is saying, as you wait for my return, stay awake, be faithful to me and my commands. Now we go to 1 Thessalonians 3. Again, in the context of the Lord's return, Paul says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for us all, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. See that? To establish our hearts is to grow in holiness. Second Peter 3, Peter says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, so that's referring to his description of the Lord's return, Peter says, What kind of people ought you to be? He says, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And you see the same point. As we wait for the return of the Lord, our focus is godliness. So our response to the Lord's return, not to try and work out when that will be, not to try and interpret world events, but it is to look at our hearts and lives and assess whether we are ready to stand before the Lord. Have our lives been pleasing to him? Will they bring glory to him when he returns? Isn't this where James has been pushing us all along and pushing us towards that undivided heart, putting away double-mindedness? I always find it strange how Peter addresses the believers at the beginning of his first letter. Peter writing to suffering believers, he first begins by drawing their mind to the Lord's return. And then he says, therefore, set your hope on what will be. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. See what James is saying? He's saying, suffering believers, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. And in the meantime, be holy. Establish your hearts. James gives a couple of specifics of what this might look like. Verse 9, he says, Do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. This brings us back again to to the theme of of our tongues, our speech, and and also the fights and quarrels that, that James mentioned earlier. I think perhaps the temptation when we're suffering is is to grumble against our brothers and sisters. Perhaps we think they're 
they're maybe not doing enough for us. Perhaps we feel they're not understanding enough or perhaps, perhaps we, we, we just distance ourselves from our church family. And James is saying, don't, don't do this. These are the people that God has given you to help you and encourage you towards holiness. We saw that clearly in our reference in 1 Thessalonians. May the Lord make you increase and an abound in love for one another so that you may establish your heart. Secondly, then, James says, verse 12, Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now, these were words that Jesus spoke. Jesus' point was not speaking against formal oath-making, but encouraging sincerity and integrity. Jesus was addressing a situation where oaths were used to make a binding agreement, but the words that, that were used created a, a kind of get-out clause. And so Jesus is really just appealing for honesty and transparency. Now, I'm not sure if, if James was addressing something specific with the believers he was writing to, but it does link in again with his, his theme of speech and our words. And I think perhaps there's a temptation when we are experiencing suffering or stress to, to make big claims or big promises that we're not going to keep. The preacher in Ecclesiastes also warns us against being rash with our mouth. He says, don't be hasty to utter a word before God. Perhaps in times of suffering, we promise to God, God, if you do this for me, if you get me out of this, if you just sort this out, if you take this away, well, I'll do this for you. I read my Bible every day. I'll never sin in this way again. And it's unlikely promises like these will not be kept. But suffering brothers and sisters, Jesus is standing at the door of world history. When it opens, we shall see the righteous judge of all the earth. And he will make all things right. So fix your eyes on that day. Be patient. And establish your heart. God, we cry to you from the darkest places of our hearts and souls. We cry to you with those who suffer in many and varied ways, from low scale to major and very significant forms of suffering in their lives. Thank you that weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So God, please give us patience and endurance. Fix our eyes on Christ's return. Help us to look to things that are unseen. Yes. 
help us to know that suffering is temporary and glory is permanent. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.